As we begin, let's stand together as is often our practice, and we'll read the first 19 verses of 2 Kings 5. Now, Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now, bands from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 10,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, with this letter, I'm sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Make the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him to say to him, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. But Nahum went away angry and said, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farfar the rivers of Damascus better than any of the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned off, turned and went off in a rage. Nahum's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and it became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Please accept now a gift from your servant. Please be seated. You might want to keep the passage open because it is a wonderful story. We'll not have time to read it in its entirety. But it's part of our uh, Unsung Heroes series. And the whole idea of Unsung Heroes, for me anyway, is very appealing. 
We live in this celebrity culture, and uh, I think there is this sense of people being obsessed with fame. We walked the walk of not shame, but fame. Maybe it is a walk of shame. The following report appeared in the newspaper this week. It shows the kind of people who will endure incredible pain so that someone else wins a race. Unsung heroes of the Tour de France. I'm sure you're following it all closely as I am. But uh, perhaps a more poignant example is this man, Nicholas Winton, the man who rescued 669 children destined for a Nazi concentration camp. He died at 106. What makes the story so special was that he hadn't even told his wife about what he had been involved in until she discovered it accidentally when going through some old papers in the attic. And the prime minister described him as a great man, and he was. And today's character doesn't get named but the story that she appears in is a fantastic tribute to her and I think provides for us a model. It's a story about isolation, about obscurity, and about healing of a great man. We know that she was displaced. Like many in Syria today, she was a victim and probably couldn't speak the language, maybe not even a few words initially of the uh, country that she was uh, moved to. And she certainly couldn't make any change in her situation. She was a victim. She was isolated and cut off from everything. Can you imagine what it must be like? Sadly, there are thousands and millions of people today who can describe and imagine what that's like. UNHCR say there are three million Syrians who have been moved out of their country and 7.6 million who have been internally displaced. And today we see a graphic picture of what life must have been life for this young girl. She was nameless. Unlike many others who were moved into exile like Daniel, who was noticed, he was given high position, he was given another name, and yet this woman gets one line in the drama. I remember being part of our BB Panto in Bangor when I was so excited to play the third sister of Cinderella, except she only had one line in this great Panto. So one line isn't a lot to go on, but we do see in this wider story something of the way in which her story is played out. She is simply the little girl from Israel. That's how she appears, no name, anonymous, isolated. And along with others who are unnamed, unsung heroes, she represents the ways of God and this series is a great opportunity to understand something more about the way God works. Starting with nothing, with helplessness, the people who do not have the power. Isn't it just like God to use obscure people 
as his change makers. There's no bias towards pedigree or ability. So the general point of this whole series, I think, is to learn from the colorful lives of people who lived by faith. Like the list at the end of Hebrews 11, if you remember them, a whole list of people, no names, just experiences they went through, where the author of Hebrews could have said, living by faith is amazing, but it's quite dangerous. Instead, it's illustrated with all of these stories of people who went through incredible experiences, who follow uh, in the steps of faith. So in contrast to so many who are preoccupied with gaining a name for themselves in Babel, in the Hollywood walk of fame, here are people who show what it's like to live by faith when faced with difficult circumstances. The context is Second Kings, and this book describes the monarchy towards the latter part of it in Israel. The first book begins with the end of David's reign, and by Second Kings chapter 5, the kingdom is divided and conquered, and we see that God is the one who controls both nature and history. So the purpose of these books is to teach about trusting this sovereign God in the midst of all sorts of changes and social crisis and political upheaval. And Elijah by then has firmly, Elijah has passed over to Elisha and Elisha is established as the prophet of Israel, recognized both in his own country and among those poor people who have been displaced into Aram or Syria, uh, having been conquered. They were carried off. What must that be like? I think one of the temptations for the church today, facing powerful forces and losing authority in society, is just to comply with the expectation that the Christian God has no role beyond the private beliefs of those who are into that sort of thing. How do we relate to the mix of nationalities around this area from all over the world holding different beliefs and hang on to the conviction that God is responsible for the rise and fall of rulers and nations in every corner of the world? Well, our story is the only example of a non-Israelite who's healed from leprosy. It's full of fascinating details that I'd love to explore. We don't have time to go into the reasons why God gave Israel into this pagan military leader's hands, why this servant girl plays such a prominent role, why she's listened to by not only name but also the king. We don't have time to look at Gehazi who appears later on. His behavior throws up lots of questions for me, and it's a reminder that wherever there are spiritual steps forward and success in lives being changed, there's usually somebody who's wanting to make some money out of it. But the important parts are left out so that we can focus on what we're told about this little girl and her attitudes and the test of love that maybe speaks to us as we follow the story. So, that's the context. 
let's switch to what happened. Scene one is about this national hero and how his disgrace can be taken away. Meet the leading character, Naaman. He is a great man. Everybody says it. He's had military success. And it's attributed to God. Yes, God, the one who made a covenant with Israel, who rescued them, through whom would come the ultimate king and rescuer. But God was enabling Israel's enemies to defeat them. And it seems God is on Naaman's side. He's got everything going for him. He was incredibly wealthy. The nation adored him. But, verse 1 said, he had leprosy. And so we have, appearing in this chapter, a national hero. Chris Kyle was an American soldier who went to war in Afghanistan with a very acute sense of justice and honor. And through four tours, he grew to iconic status as Americans, America's greatest sniper. His problem was he couldn't live with the brutality of war and be home with his family that he loved and fought to protect. If you've read or heard any of Chris Kyle's story, it was one of lostness, his own lostness within his story of success. And his wife said, I need you to be human again. I need you to be here. I'm sure heroes are not always easy to live with. I take that just as some comfort to me. But <laughs> here was Naaman, who was that man too, who was loved by everybody, but his own household saw that he needed rescued, including this little girl who had every reason to be re resentful, our unsung hero. This girl who was kidnapped and taken into servitude showed compassion rather than any sense of satisfaction that her enemy was getting his comeuppance. More remarkably, this girl, this little girl who was a trophy of Naaman's victory becomes the key to his restoration. That's about all we know of this little girl from Israel. How did she develop such attitudes? We don't know. But her longing in verse 3 is clearly an expression of compassion for Naaman, if only she would see the prophet who is in Israel. He would be healed from his leprosy. And her conviction that Syria and its victory didn't diminish her trust in God. Seems so far removed. It's as if perhaps Sharia law was introduced here and many of us were forced into labor camps. And that's what happened in her world. Everything was turned upside down. And yet somehow this tiny word of hope from an isolated, obscure girl was taken seriously. 
and echoed to the king. And here is somebody who has an authentic and a compassionate witness to the people that she's with and to the God who she serves. So what do we make of this little girl from Israel? What does it say to us? Maybe you're focusing on how you've been betrayed or disappointed. Or perhaps in that situation, you're able, like her, to ask God what your purpose is for this tough situation. She moved beyond betrayal to love. Is that possible? With family members or former friends who failed you, let you down, you feel this is all wrong? Or are you able to see the source of hope which has been maybe ridiculed and dismissed that it's still effective and exactly what's needed? Paul writes when he's addressing the church in Rome, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes, first the Jew and then the Gentile. And for Naaman, the solution was back in that very place where Syria had displayed superior strength and Israel seemed like a spent force. Scene two, the story moves to Samaria where Naaman had carried off not only a great victory but the spoils of war and now he's retracing his steps with a great deal of that wealth and if restitution was needed, he was ready. If the answer to his need was really in this backwater place, then he had the wherewithal to pay for it. So the king of Israel receives this great man in need of help. He checked his references, the endorsement from the very top of Syria, and with an opportunity to restore the reputation of Israel and build on the Israelite girl's testimony, what did he do? He pressed the panic button. Good friend of mine loves using the phrase, snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. And that's exactly what seems to happen here with the king of Israel. It describes the situation so well that when the biggest opportunity to demonstrate faith and compassion comes along, this nervous king develops a persecution complex and he sees an ulterior motive. The little girl doesn't appear again, but she does stand in contrast to the king. She was prepared to speak about the grace of God and urge her master to go to the prophet who is in Israel. While the king lacks any of her hope and can't see that the God who holds life and death in his hand is revealed in Israel and can be known through his prophet. And the question she poses to us is, do we really believe that the God 
we proclaim is able to make a difference in people's lives? Are there people, perhaps, who just seem too powerful or maybe too troubled, maybe beyond hope to be rescued? But as scene two ends, Naaman's need has not been met and the king has failed to make the connection that this little girl made in exile and she sees so clearly. Before we have a quick and final look at scene three, doesn't it remind you of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 18, verse three, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. When Naaman finally gets to the place where his disease can be dealt with in verse nine, the treatment just doesn't suit him. His expectations are set out in verse 11. What is he looking for? He's expecting the right kind of treatment. But Elisha didn't even give him a personal consultation. There was no prayer. The problem wasn't even suitably examined. The prescription was totally degrading. And verse 12 says he went off in a rage. I'm not sure if you've had that experience. I know there are more and more incidents of patients who have unrealistic expectations of you doctors and nurses and how you should treat them. And some of them may even stump off in a rage because they expected more and they haven't been treated properly. The lesson here seems to be that humility and obedience is required if we're going to experience restoration and get a completely new start. Naaman's servants could see this offer was not to be spurned. And they repeated the simple instructions. What were they? Wash and be cleansed. That echoes the need of so many. But Naaman wanted to earn his healing. He had the resources. And the prescription was very simple. What would you do? The silver in his kitty was worth about 100,000. According to the amount of gold and yesterday's gold prices of 23 pounds 40 per gram, his gold supply was worth about 1.6 million. None of it would make him clean. So he went down with his servant's encouragement and dipped himself as Elisha had instructed. And what's the result? Verse 14, his flesh was restored and he became clean like that of a young boy. What a transformation. What a longing perhaps that many of us have to have that kind of restoration. He returned to Elisha and said, now I know there is no God in all the world except in Israel. We don't have time for Gehazi, as I said, but he's another example of role reversal. There seems to be so much of that in this chapter. 
as his love of Naaman's money results in him inheriting Naaman's disease. So what's this about? And what can we take from these few lines about this nameless girl from Israel? The great man had a problem to which the little girl had a solution. But the solution involved Naaman becoming like her. A little child. Someone under authority. Humbly acknowledging that he had found faith. And this little girl points us to Jesus who uses a little child from Israel to say, accept my authority like one of these and experience cleansing from the inside out. And that's the story of this little girl. I finish with a holiday photograph, just one, I promise. It's not a very good one. I was cycling through the Golden Gate Park and there was this beautiful Celtic stone cross, which from one side you can see the cross very clearly, but from the other side, there was this dramatic stream of water flowing down into a lake. And it seemed to me a great illustration of Naaman's experience. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. And flowing from the cross is a stream, perhaps not the most glorious, refreshing stream you can think of, but one that will cleanse from the inside out. And may that be our experience as we think about this little girl from Israel.